So I was in Edmonton last week and uh, at the church there, and I was wearing my Montreal Canadiens tie. And they asked me why I was wearing a Montreal tie in Edmonton, uh, but then they went on to say that the Oilers ties were actually quite affordable. And uh, so I'm guessing, I'm, you notice I didn't wear it this morning. Um, I didn't wear a Flames tie because, A, I don't have one, and B, I'm still bitter from 1989, the last time the Flames won the Cup. You beat Montreal, so, you know, it's still... <laughs> you thought I was joking. <laughs> I want to tell you a bit of a story as I begin this morning for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that some of you are asking me what I'm going to be doing next. I have resigned as the president of Western Christian for as of June 30th. Um, and so I want to... Uh, John directed me, you should share with the church what you're doing. So I'll do that. But more importantly, I, it's going to introduce what I want to talk about this morning with you. Um, a year and a half ago, well, three years ago, let me back up to there. Our youth minister moved from Arkansas, and he and his wife moved into the hood, north central Regina, Canada's worst neighborhood, according to McLean's magazine. And um, a year and a half ago, they started, well, they started taking in kids into their home, um, because as Daryl said, Daryl's our youth minister, he said, living missionally is when you open your front door and you see the world as a mission field. And so they started taking in kids to watch movies and have popcorn and have jello and soup. And so after a while of doing that, um, my wife Lisa and I and Daryl and Kristen, we said we should start a Christian club. So we did. And we had about six or eight kids that first year through fall of 2008 into 2009. And then last summer, we ended up getting more kids. As the spring came on, we had 20, 25 kids. So we decided, let's move this to an elementary school, because with 25 kids, it was getting a little large for Daryl and Kristen's house. So last summer, we moved it to Wascana Elementary School in North Central Regina. And in the last few weeks, we've been getting, we've averaged 37 kids the last three weeks. So God has been blessing us. These are mostly Aboriginal kids. Uh, some of them... Uh, one girl told me one Sunday morning, we picked her up and brought her to church, and she said, "My just matter-of-factly, she said, I have two older sisters, and one's in jail, and the other's on the bracelet. Electronic monitoring. Uh, the same girl has been offered pot already by her aunt, 10-year-old girl. Um, and I could go on with stories like that. But these are kids who may or may not have a meal when they go home after school every day. So God has opened a lot of doors for us uh, with relationships with these kids. 48% of Aboriginals in Canada will never finish high school. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, that was maybe a month ago or so now, one of the grandmas phoned us. She phoned uh, my wife, Lisa. It was a Friday afternoon. And she said, uh, <clears throat> my daughter, Belinda, has gone into rehab. She's an alcoholic. And uh, I've got the grandkids by myself for a month. Uh, do, you guys, do you guys pray for people? So that started a 30-hour, or 30-minute, not 30-hour, 30 30-minute 30 conversation with Lisa and Eunice, this grandma. And she said, you know, I've got these grandkids for a month by myself. I'm probably going to need a little bit of help. So the next week, my wife and I picked up these three grandkids that come to our, our, our outreach ministry. We call it the party because the kids say, hey, are you having the party tonight? And we're like, you bet, we're having the party. So we call it the party, and we meet Tuesday night. And these three grandkids come, 
And uh, so we, Lisa and I went over and picked up the grandkids along with my daughter, Chris's 10, and a couple of her friends. And the eight of us went over to Petland. And uh, we went and petted kitties and puppies for, for about an hour. Aboriginal people really like animals and nature. And uh, all kids love animals. So we were over there petting these animals for about an hour. And then we went to McDonald's for another hour, had some ice cream. The kids played in the, in the ball pit. And then we, we took the grandkids back home and we prayed there with Eunice in her living room. At one point, she, uh, one of the kids spilled her ice cream. My wife went to the kitchen to get, um, to get a napkin and came back and she, and she said to Eunice, your oven door is open. Is that okay? And uh, a lot of people in the inner city will heat their homes with their oven, their oven door open. And Eunice said, yeah, that's fine. Leave the oven door open. So we had a prayer there with her, and she told us about her kids and different uh, grandkids. She raised all her kids. She's raising all her grandkids now. Her kids will come home. They'll be drunk or high, and she'll be afraid, so she'll go upstairs and lock herself in a bedroom with the, with the grandkids until the danger passes by. So here we are having a prayer in Eunice's home for her and her kids and her grandkids and her daughter who's in rehab well, those are the kind of opportunities that God has given us. They don't happen every day, but the kind of doors that God is opening for us to serve in the inner city of Regina. And so God has put it on my heart this last year and a half that, you know, Jesus loved the poor and the marginalized, and, uh, and so should I. And so my plan is to plant a church in the inner city of Regina in the next uh, year or so. <clears throat> Lord willing. So uh, I ask you to pray for that. I ask you to uh, to uh, to intercede for us uh, before the Lord on, on behalf of what we want to do. And it's been really neat because uh, when we look back a year and a half ago when we started this, there there was no way in the world we would have envisioned what would have happened. You know, I was I was quite busy with the school, and I was suddenly adding another obligation on a weekly basis. Every Wednesday it was Wednesday that at that time, uh, every Wednesday night. Another thing to do. And it sort of felt more like an obligation. And now God has opened up huge doors of opportunity for us. Um, and so I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about that. And, and it's neat because we didn't write a mission statement. We didn't have a vision. We didn't have a strategic plan. It was just God opened the door. And here we are. And so we're stepping through. And just really quickly, if you are interested, we are doing a mission camp this summer. This is for high school students and adults. If you would like to come, we are in the last week of July, and there's brochures back on the Connection, what's it called, the Connection Center. Mission 610, this is a mission camp for high school students and adults who want to come. If you want to participate in, in reaching out to these kids of the inner city and these adults and being the love of Jesus to them, uh, we'd love for you to come and to spend a week with us. Or if you want to help do some construction work at Western Christian, there's lots of opportunities. Um, we'd love for you to come and be, be a part of that. But the other reason that I, I tell you that is, is not just because of myself, but more so because I want to talk with you this morning about the mission of God and the mission that God has for this world and the love that God has to bring his message of salvation into the homes, and into the lives of every person on this planet. You see, the problem with the word mission is as soon as you say the word mission, people think of a trip that you go on that goes overseas. 
My son, Kelly, is 16. He just got back from Mexico from a mission trip. Last night flew into Calgary. This morning's flying back to Regina with 11 other teenagers from Western. They had a great time. They told me all about it last night. But the problem with missions or a mission trip is that we think that it is something overseas and something that happens, that starts on a certain date and ends when you come home. But the mission of God doesn't end when the mission trip is over. And the mission of God is not limited to the geography on the other side of the world. The mission of God is right here in Calgary. The mission of God is in the inner city of Regina. God is on a mission, and he is already working, and he's already preparing things, even before we lay out plans and vision statements and mission statements. God is already there working ahead of us. And so the mission of God is what I want to talk with you about, about with you this morning, and living missionally. That is to say, opening our front door and seeing the mission field right outside. Turn with me in your scriptures to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. This is, on the one hand, a familiar story, the story of Zacchaeus. But on the other hand, when we read it in light of the entire Gospel of Luke, it's a story that is filled with missional imagination. Read with me the word of the Lord, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Now, to really understand this story, we need to understand something that was happening in the first century in Jewish culture. In the first century, there was a sharp divide right down the middle of Judaism. On the one hand, there were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These were the people who uh, wore their suits and ties every Sunday morning, the people who dressed up and wore their, wore their best clothes to Sunday, the people who carried their Bibles and went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. These were the God-fearing people, the godly leaders of Jewish society. And so that was one side. And the other side of Jewish culture were the sinners. And that always shows up in quotes in the New Testament. Because the sinners were, some of them were morally bankrupt people, prostitutes and, and people who were just bankrupt morally. But some of them were just people who struggled, people who struggled every day with life. And those people were on a separate, kind of in a separate division of Judaism. And, and the people over here, 
the religious leaders all looked down on the people over here. And they would not have fellowship. They would not have contact. They would not have anything to do with the people over there. It was like there was a sharp a river flowing through with a sharp valley in it. And the people over here would never go over there, and the people over there would never go over here. And everybody in the first century knew that if God ever came to visit, everybody on both sides of the camp, everybody knew that God would go over here because this is where the godly people are. This is where the moral people are. This is where the religious people are. And we all know that those people over there are unworthy of the Lord. And so when Jesus came in the first century, he shocked everybody on both sides of the camp because he went not on this side, not only on this side, but he also went over here. This divide was so sharp in the first century that the Pharisees in Luke chapter 7, do you remember the story in Luke seven thirty-six and following? Jesus went to the home of Simon the Pharisee and there was a sinful woman there that was so overcome with her sinfulness that she was, she was weeping. And she was washing Jesus' feet with, with her tears and wiping his feet with her hair. And about verse 39 there, it says in Luke chapter 7, that, that the Pharisees were sitting there thinking, if this man is a rabbi, he can't be a rabbi, because he, if he was a rabbi, he would know what kind of woman is touching him, that she's a sinner. You see, in their mind, it was inconceivable that Jesus would both be a rabbi and allow a sinful woman to touch her. It was inconceivable. If Jesus truly was a rabbi, there was no way that he would let this woman do this. That's how sharp the dividing line was in the first century. And yet, Jesus crossed that line. And he crossed it very intentionally. He said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Do you understand what that means? It would be like Kelly and Robin going to Lady Gaga's house for a dinner party. It would be like the last place you think a good Christian would go. It's not going to happen. And yet that is exactly what Jesus did with Zacchaeus. And so all the people began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, I'm going to give half of my possessions away to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm going to give four back, pay, pay them back four times the amount, which was exactly what the Old Testament law said to do. If you had stolen from someone, you would pay back four times. And so very interestingly, when Jesus crosses this gulf and goes over here and it goes to the home of a sinner and a tax collector, the man repents. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing how when the love of God comes into your home and into your life, how it melts your heart and you're able to see your sin for what it is. Repentance is always the right response to the gospel. Different churches have started neat traditions around illustrating their repentance when they become Christians, when when people turn to the Lord and are baptized into Christ. I know of one church in Dallas. It's kind of a inner city church plant combined with they've got some wealthy people and some some uh, some poor people in this church. But this one particular fellow, uh, obviously a street guy, his long scraggly hair, his teeth are kind of all stained and kind of nasty. And and uh, when he came to be baptized into Christ, he brought a symbol of his repentance. He brought Merck's Index, which is a medical book that physicians and nurses will use to uh, 
prescribed pharmacy. And this fellow says that when he was younger, he got a copy of Merck's index. And he was going to make his own pharmaceuticals so that he could control other people and get rich. And it shows him coming to be baptized in the swimming pool. He's baptized into Christ. He comes out and then he takes his copy of Merck's index and he throws it in the garbage can as a physical symbol that he's not going to rely on that anymore. In another church, they have a tradition where they ask people to bring a new, to buy a new set of clothes and when they get baptized into Jesus, that they should then take off the clothes that symbolize their old life and they put on these new clothes. One particular woman just wore a set of jeans and a t-shirt. She got baptized into Christ and when she came out, she went and changed out of her jeans and her t-shirt, put on her new clothes. And in her testimony to the church, she said, these jeans have been in a lot of clubs and have danced on a lot of tables. But I'm putting that all behind me to follow Jesus Christ. You see, repentance is always the right response to Jesus. Because he is the king. He is the Lord. And as long as I am trying to be in charge of my own life, then Jesus Christ cannot sit on the throne of my heart. And so Jesus says to him in verse 9, and to all the people there, he says, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. This man too is a son of Abraham. That's what Jesus is saying. This man belongs in our community. This man is no longer an outcast. This man is no longer a label. This man is no longer a sinner. This man, too, is a son of Abraham. Jesus is not just saying, hey, this guy's saved. Individualistic salvation. No, he is saying, this man is part of our community. This man is a son of Abraham. And that is part of what salvation means. It means to come into the community of God's people. And then Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Wow. Not only was the love of God incarnated in Jesus Christ when he was born, but hear this, the love of God was incarnated in Jesus Christ when he crossed that dividing line, that social barrier, and went over to Zacchaeus' house and had dinner with him. And salvation came to his house that day as a result. And so the love of God is not just about Jesus Christ being incarnated and coming to this planet. It's about the love of God being incarnated in a person who goes to other people's houses for dinner. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is always going to other people's houses for lunch and for dinner. All kinds of people, tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, criminals, all kinds of people, Jesus is crossing ethnic lines, social barriers, religious hurdles. He is crossing all of those things in order to bring the love of God into people's lives. And it's some 13 or 15 times where Jesus goes to have dinner with other people. Now think about the gospel in these terms. There's our turf. There's our turf. I'm going to do it physically. There's shared turf and there's their turf. Our turf is where we're comfortable. We come here to this church building. You guys know where to park. You know which door to go in. You know what, what room to enter. You know where the bathrooms are. You know when it starts, when to stand up, and when to leave. You know who to talk to if you need something. This is our turf. 
Then there's shared turf. Shared turf is schools, malls, restaurants, where workplaces where Christians and non-Christians live together. And then there's their turf. <laughs> their turf is where non-Christians live and are, where they know the rules, where they're comfortable, when they know what to do and where to go and where to be. Now think about the gospel in these terms. Jesus had no turf of his own. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so Jesus was not about inviting people to his house or to his church building or to his temple to hear the gospel. Jesus was about going to their turf, going into other people's homes and being with them on their turf where they were comfortable, and that's where ministry happened. So much of Christianity is about attracting people to our space and our building and our where we're comfortable. But the fact of the matter is, when somebody who doesn't know anything about Christ walks into this building or any other church building, they are totally clueless and uncomfortable. It's our space. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus went to their space. And he went to shared space. As we, as we end this morning, I want, I want to help you think missionally. I, I want to awaken your imagination. Because so much of our thinking about Christianity and about sharing our faith is attractional. We're going to attract people to our building. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get the best property we can with the highest profile. We're going to have the most charismatic speaker. We're going to have the most dynamic worship service. There's going to be a moment of boringness in it. And we're going to make that puppy so high impact that no one could ever visit and turn away. That's one model. Attracting people to events. Having all kinds of things that we would bring people to. But there's a different way, and that is actually what I would suggest is the way of Jesus. Where we go out into workplaces, we go out into our neighborhoods, we go out where they are. Starbucks, Tim Hortons, your workplace, your school, where non-Christians are comfortable, where they already live. That's the missional imagination. So how does this work on the ground level? Well, I've already given you one example of our youth minister, Daryl and Kristen, who live in the inner city of Regina. And their home is in the middle of the mission field. But so is your home. There was a man in Edmonton, a physician. I don't know him personally. I just read the story in the book. He was driving 20 minutes from his home to an attractional church where they were trying to draw people in. 20 minutes, and he was quite involved and was in a lot of committees, so they had a lot of meetings. So he was driving all the time to church. He was a physician, so he was busy. One day, he realized across the street from him was a shut-in who couldn't cut her own lawn. So he went across and began to cut her own lawn, cut her lawn for her. After some time of doing that, he realized he wasn't just cutting her lawn. There were three other shut-ins on his block. He was cutting all of their lawns for them, and each lawn didn't just take 10 minutes. It took quite a long time because people on the street would come and stop and visit and everybody in the neighborhood would, would get to know each other. And after a while, he started a little Bible study in his home and that kind of grew. And after a while, he was like, you know what, all these people here aren't going to drive 20 minutes to go to church over there. And he actually, sorry Kelly, but quit going to his church and started doing something right in his neighborhood. That's missional. My wife, uh, the other just a couple of weeks ago, gave me 
shared a story with me of something that happened in her workplace. She's a dietitian, and so she works actually in the inner city of Regina at a health clinic. And it's all women in her, in her health clinic. And sometimes when they have lunch together, the conversation gets kind of foul. And she doesn't really enjoy that. So she struggles with what to do because she doesn't like sitting in that and listening to all that. It makes her uncomfortable. And yet if she leaves, she feels like, oh yeah, they're another Christian. They think they're better than we are. And she doesn't want that either. So just like two weeks ago, at lunch one day, she decided she was going to stay. And she, she had just had a friend write her a letter and said, you know what, we're done. And that was kind of painful. And so Lisa brought this up at lunchtime as she was visiting with her colleagues. And immediately everybody there around the table engaged in that conversation. It was something that was neutral and something that everybody could talk about. And by the end of the lunch hour, one lady had shared something with the rest of the group that happened 27 years ago that she had never talked about. And she got quite emotional. And so I think that's amazing that my wife was able to kind of facilitate that to happen and form some level of community in her workplace. That's what it means to be missional. Because a lot of times, people in the world, are they think Christians are boring, hypocritical, they hate gays, and if I ever go to church, all they're going to do is ask me for money. And they think that they're better than we are. And so Lisa was doing something that would begin to build bridges of community in her workplace and overcome some of those stereotypes. That's what it means to live missionally. You all have people in your network of relationships. If uh, oh, One more story. This is what I meant to end with. Recently I was talking with a, uh, a friend of mine who's a landscaper. And I was asking him, how's church life? How's your faith? And uh, he and I are, are good friends and I helped him come to Christ. And so we try and touch base now and then. And so I asked him about that. And he said, well, it's kind of dry right now. Our church is this and that. And I've kind of lost my passion and so I said well I told him some of these stories about living missionally and I and I said you know like what about your neighbors did they do anything and he said well my actually my neighbor immediately beside me has MS and she can't cut her lawn now she has a couple of renters and I've always thought they should cut the lawn and you know what for every time I cut my lawn like three times I cut my lawn her lawn gets cut once and every five times I shovel my walk her walk gets shoveled you know what, from now on, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to, sh- I'm going to when I cut my grass, I'm going to cut her grass. When I shovel my walk, I'm going to shovel her walk. And then we watched this video online on YouTube about living missionally. And one of the things that the guy said was, you know what, he said a lot of Christians get together in their little huddles at church and they have this jargon that other people don't understand and they talk about things that, you know, frankly, the rest of the world doesn't care about. He said, I'm, I'm a landscaper. One of the things that everybody I work with cares about is the environment. When I tried to do stuff about that five, six, seven years ago, I was told in my church, well, hey, saving souls is more important than saving the environment. And so we talked about a couple of scriptures and how we need to take care of the creation and be good stewards of, of this world. And he said, you know what? I'm going to go through the Bible and I'm going to mark every place where it says we need to be good stewards of creation. 
So that's so what I did was, and then we talked about, hey, your neighbor, when you go over and cut your neighbor's lawn, you are helping to take care of the soil. And so I was able to help him reconnect his passion with his faith and service to the people right beside him. And so every one of you, every one of us, has a network of relationships already at our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities. And all we have to do is open our eyes to the mission field that is right outside our front door. Brothers and sisters, we are the people of God, and we are on the mission of God. And may God empower you to be the hands and feet of Jesus in your community for the sake of the world. And may God cause it to be so. Amen.